oh Lord, that, that song puts so many of our thoughts into words. Lord, we, we come today carrying burdens. We come today with uh, regrets from the past year. We come today with a desire to leave behind things that happened this year and a longing that things will be better in the new year. Lord, we come today uh, with our own brokenness and our own sin. We come today, Lord, in the midst of a world that has sorrows all around us. And Lord, it's heavy and it's hard. And Lord, we are burdened down. And so, Lord, we confess that even now. We confess that, Lord, our hope even now is not in situations getting better, in us accomplishing all the goals we have for the coming days, stuff getting fixed in our world. Our hope is in you, O oh God. You are the one that said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh Lord, that's what we need, that's what we want, and that's what we look to you for today. Thank you that you offer us rest. Lord, you did not come into the world to condemn the world, but Lord, you came into the world to condemn the sin that burdens us down to conquer it and then rise again and offer life to us today. Lord, we long for that life in our souls. We long for that life in our walk with you. We long for that life to be our life. Lord, help us, we pray. Even as we come now to your word, Lord, make us alive to it. Lord, this is a unique morning. Like we didn't expect to have to trudge through snow to get here. Um, we're probably more tired than we want to be. But Lord, your word is our life and our light. Quicken our souls, awaken us to the truth of scripture that can change us. Lord, teach us your way, oh Lord. We will follow in your truth. Give us an undivided, undistracted heart to receive the good food of your word, we pray. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and let's go to Luke chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning. Boys and girls, as we're turning in our Bibles, you can take your Bibles and meet your leaders in the back. We've got Kids Church available for you downstairs, ages four years old through second grade. Meet your leaders in the back. And for the rest of us, going to continue our series in the book of Luke. We started it at Advent. Now we're going to continue. We're calling this series Past Promises, Present Redemption. And I think that stands out to us as we see God's word in Luke chapter 3. I'm going to read portions of our text this morning. We'll get to all of it in the sermon today. But for time, I just want to give some summary thoughts. So we're going to start in the second half of verse 2, Luke, in chapter 3, he starts this text with a, a historical account of the setting. And then he introduces us to John. Begin reading the second half of verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. 
and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then Luke quotes a prophecy from Isaiah that shows us the ministry that John was going to have. Pick up in verse seven. What does that ministry look like? He said, he proclaimed to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Happy New Year. Okay. Who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he also said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is 2023, everyone. In case you didn't know, Happy New Year. I wonder, how many of you uh, stayed up last night to, uh, to celebrate the turn of the year? Anybody in the room? Okay. A few of you. Maybe that's why you're at this service. Okay. And not the next one. Yeah. Uh, I've been thinking about how we celebrate the new year. In particular, I've actually been thinking about a question that gets a lot, that gets asked a lot this time of year. I, I wonder if you've heard it or if you've asked it. Okay. It's the question, are you ready for the new year? Have you heard that question? Have you asked it? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, think about it for just a second. Like, we know what we're asking when we say, are we ready for Christmas? Right? Are you ready for the lights, the gift giving, and receiving? Okay? Ready for the traditions, the time off, the time with family, the food. Are we ready for Christmas? But what do we mean when we ask, are you ready for the new year? I, I do not think that it's, are you ready to watch a ball drop in New York City? Okay? even though probably some of you watched that last night. We watched the Eastern Standard Time version of it, by the way. You can do that. It works, okay? It doesn't feel quite the same. 
But I don't, I don't think that's what it is. I, I don't think it's that we're so excited to see 11.59 turn to 12.00 on our clocks. I, I don't think that's what it is either. What is it? I think, I think, it's that we're asking if we're ready for what's next, aren't we? Like, we're ready for something better, for something more, for something new. I, I think that's what we're saying, aren't we? And for many of us, to say that we're ready is to say that we've got plans, right? We've got hopes, we've got goals. Some of those goals are really simple. We're gonna eat less cookies and more vegetables. Some of them take a lot of work, like we're gonna get a membership to the gym, or, or maybe be honest, you're gonna actually use the membership that you've had since last January, okay? I've been there before, right? Yeah. We have plans and goals, and this year we're going to do more and be organized, and we're going to try harder, and we're going to really mean it this time. We're ready, at least for a few weeks, right? And don't get me wrong, that, that is all fine and good for New Year's resolutions about food and health and time management. But sadly, it can be very tempting for us to bring that same way of thinking into our relationship with God, can't it? And for far too many, when they think about being ready in their relationship with the Lord, they think more about trying harder and being better and really meaning it this time than they do about what God's word tells us actually matters to him. Oh my friends, could it be that's why for far too many, their relationship with God often looks more like a tried and failed New Year's resolution than it does the life of salvation that Jesus Christ came to offer to his people. Do you know that that's where God's word meets us today? God's word meets us right there with, with Jesus' coming to the earth and how to be ready to receive him. You see, this chapter makes clear two facts for us. One, Jesus the King is coming. And two, his people need to be ready in their hearts to welcome him. Now where do we see that? Well, I think we see it when we start to examine that prophecy that I mentioned just a little bit ago, okay? This is from the prophet Isaiah. It's in verses four through six. So look down at your Bibles, okay? Luke quotes the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 40, and I'd encourage you to actually read the whole chapter to see why Luke pulls this out, because the whole chapter has helpful understanding for us about who Jesus is and who John is. But here's the quote that Luke gives us in verse 4. He says this, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, what is Isaiah talking about? Let's, let's kind of get into this picture a little bit. Okay, so in those days, Isaiah was pulling out a picture of a king that would visit a city under his rule and reign. And when he wanted to do that, he would send along a messenger that would come with news of his coming. So that messenger, he'd show up in the city and he would proclaim two things to that city. He would say, number one, it's an amazing honor for you. The king is coming. And number two, we gotta get stuff in order. 
And specifically, what needed to be made in order was a way for the king to come. So in that day, cities weren't connected by roads and highways like we have today. Oftentimes, they were connected simply by footpaths and ruts that people would make as they were going from point A to point D. So as those people were going along, if they came to a rock that was too big to go over, they would just go around it, right? And if they came to a ditch, then they'd have to work their way down into it and then work their way up the other side. Now, that's fine for getting from point A to point B, but that will not do when the king and his entourage are coming to your town. So, to get ready, the king would not go around or over boulders. They would need to be removed. His entourage doesn't go down into and out of ditches. Those need to be filled in. And in anticipation of the king, the way needed to be made straight and smoothed out. But notice something, okay? What's interesting about how Isaiah talks about this king is he doesn't talk about him like he's an ordinary earthly king, okay? He's talking about a king who's coming, who's preceded not by ditches getting filled in, but by valleys getting filled in. Did you see that? Okay. This is not boulders that need to be removed. This is mountains that need to be leveled. You see, my friends, the king that Isaiah is talking about, that Luke brings to the forefront, is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. You see, in verses four through six, Luke is quoting the prophecy of Isaiah to say this, the king is almost here. And the preparation, this massive project of getting ready for him is already underway. How? In a voice, crying in the wilderness. Now, who was that voice? Verse three. The word of God came to John in the wilderness. Now, John wasn't preparing the way by working with dirt and stones to smooth out an actual road, was he? Okay, that's not what it means to prepare for Jesus. John prepared the way by proclaiming the word of God. And in that, hard hearts would be softened to receive their king. I mean, we see that when we just look at the imagery in Isaiah 40, with spiritual glasses instead of physical ones, okay? Which I probably should say because some of you, when you heard mountains and valleys and you thought about what it looked like outside, you were making plans for the rest of the day, okay? So we're gonna look at it with spiritual lenses. The valleys of the discouraged and the beaten down will be lifted up. The mountains of the proud and oppressive will be flattened to humility. The crooked ways of corruption and injustice are straightened out and every difficult object is removed. This is what God says must happen in preparation for the coming of his son. The hearts of the people need to be made ready. And that's what God sent John to do. All you have to do is think back to chapter one where the prophecy to Zechariah was that John would come to turn the hearts of the people. Or we think even back to the prophecy in Isaiah 57 where God would revive the hearts of his people. 
Prepare the way meant prepare your heart. And as we look at how Luke describes the ministry and message of John in preparing the hearts of God's people for Jesus' coming, I think we find a message for ourselves. Because it is true, Jesus has already come. So what does this chapter mean for us? Here's what I think it means. I think we find what God wants from every human heart in this text. And our text is gonna show us three things about that today. And we're gonna look at them one by one. What kind of heart does God want in his people? The first thing our text is gonna show us, God wants Humble hearts. Humble hearts. I think we see this even as we begin this chapter. Look at verse one. Luke opens this chapter with an announcement of what year it is, okay? That's what's going on with all of these names, okay? And Luke does not have the luxury of saying it's 2023, okay? He can't just say a number because in those times, to mark a time in history, you stated who was in power at the time. Okay, that's how you did it. And that's what Luke's doing in verse one. Look down at verse one with me. He says this, he says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And then he lists six other names, six other rulers of that time. So what is Luke doing with this list of seven men? Well, here's what I think he's doing. I think the first thing is he's showing us how needy God's people are at this time. You see, this list of seven men is is one of the longest and most robust accounts of a timing in the book of Luke. There's more here than Luke uses to describe the birth of Jesus and his ministry. What is Luke doing? He's describing to us how needy God's people are at this time because when you look at these seven rulers, five of them political, two of them religious, we see a system of corruption and oppression and tyranny and darkness that God's people had suffered under for a very long time. And as Luke opens this chapter, he brings that front and center. But he also brings front and center this truth. It was during that time that God's word came. God did not leave his people alone. Yes, they'd been beaten down. Yes, they were humbled under an oppressive rule. Yes, they were in the valley of their discouragement, but God had not forgotten or overlooked them. In their need, the word of God was coming, and it would not come to those in power at the top of the mountain, would it? It comes to John in the wilderness and to the people who gathered there. And in that, I think we see where God does his work in the lowly places of need, in humility. There's a message for us there, isn't there? God does great work in humble places, doesn't he? I mean, in moments of our brokenness and our need, we are tempted to think that God has forgotten us, aren't we? We're tempted to think that our problems are overlooked and that we need to somehow get God's attention. Maybe that's with effort or self-achievement. Maybe we need to do something. But these verses remind us that in the coming of Jesus, 
I love how Jack Miller, one pastor, puts it. He says, in the coming of Jesus, grace flows downhill. Oh, my friends, that's good news. Because where are we in need? We turn the calendar, and as we turn it, oftentimes we aren't meeting that with optimism. We're meeting it with, I hope things are better this year, because last year they weren't. We meet it with, oh, I just want to leave last year behind. Oh, my friends, God meets the needy. Grace flows downhill. It is precisely there that God does his work. But our text also shows us that it is only there that God does his work. Because as we study this text, we find that it is only in the humble that God works. When Jesus comes, mountains have to be brought low. So we start looking at the heart of John's message, and what is it? It's a message of baptism, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What was his message? His message was a requirement of humility to receive it. And I think that's what we see when we start to look at who he was calling to be baptized and what that meant for them. Okay? So let's take a second and talk about baptism, and let's talk about the baptism that John was calling God's people to. Okay? So in the first century, in the first century, the Jews would have been very familiar with what John's talking about here. Okay? They would have known about a type of baptism, but not because they needed it for themselves. Because Gentiles needed it. Gentiles needed baptized, not Jews. You see, when a Gentile wanted to begin following Jesus, one of the first steps was to be ceremonially washed by immersing themselves in a baptismal pool. This, is, this was the mikvah. That was a Gentile practice. Jews were clean though, right? At least they thought they were. They were sons of Abraham. They, they had the right bloodline. And not only that, they had the law and prophets that told them how to stay clean. And they had a whole system that helped them with that. But you see what John is saying here? John's saying that none of that mattered if your heart isn't humbled. It doesn't matter if you have a great family heritage. It doesn't matter if you've been following the law your whole life. It doesn't matter your status or religious achievements. You may think you are good enough for God, but you're wrong, John was saying. Your heart is as dirty as a Gentile's. Everyone needs humility. Everybody needs to get in the water, John was saying. And baptism was the sign and symbol that the humbling repentance had reached the heart of God's people. But, but don't go further than what John's saying here, okay? So when he's talking about baptism, I want you to know that that baptism would no more save them than their bloodline or religious activities would. What saved them was the God who forgives the sins of those who admit they need it. That's the point that I want to make here. What saved the people was God and the forgiveness that he offered to those who admit they need it. God's after a heart that admits that it's sinful and needs forgiving. 
a heart that's been so humbled by God's word that it willingly enters the waters of baptism to publicly profess how much it needs the salvation that was coming in the Messiah. That's why the text says that he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He didn't say a baptism for repentance. A baptism that reflects the humility that's in the heart that God requires. That's the kind of heart that God wants in his people, a heart of humility. So, t- so today, as we hear the word, see your need. Don't look away from it. Don't rush past it. Don't belittle it by comparing yourself to somebody else. Don't hide it behind religious activity. The heart God requires is a humble heart. And that's the first thing we see in our text today. But then Luke goes on. There's another aspect of the kind of heart that God requires, and that is this. He requires repentant hearts in his people. Repentant hearts. So you see that when you begin to look at this message that John proclaims. He, he says in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The summary of his message is it's a message of repentance. So as we begin to get into the book of Luke, I, I just want you to know this won't be the last time that we hear the word repentance brought up in this gospel. Okay? Luke talks about repentance 25 times. And the reason I say that is because it's more than all the other gospel writers combined. And I think that's because to receive the past promises and present redemption, God wants us to examine the condition of our hearts. You see, what John was after, what John was preparing the way for was a change so deep in the hearts of God's people that they would then follow him with their lives. So the word repentance, it has two parts in the original language. The first part, change. The second part, mind. That's what the word repentance means. Simply means a change of mind, a change of thinking, a change of the way you view the world and then live in it. That's repentance. Repentance says something needs to change. Repentance says something isn't right and change is necessary. And I think as John works through this message with God's people, he's saying, if you want to see the salvation of God, things need to change in your life. Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he has a chapter on repentance. I love how he describes this concept. Look at what he says. He says, repentance is not an emotion. It's not feeling sorry for your sins. It's a decision. It's deciding that you've been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It's deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. It's deciding that you've been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world, and it's deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Thanks be to God that the way, the truth, and the life comes to meet people in a world full of lies. Amen? This is what God's after. And we see that as we begin to look at the specifics of John's message. So in verse 7, we begin to see John's message worked out. And what's he doing? 
Time after time, he's confronting lies and calling the people to turn to the truth. He's calling out lies and saying, these are going to keep you from receiving Jesus as king. Turn from them. So you look down at this list. John's simply saying, don't believe the lie that you're good enough. Okay? Verse 7, you're a brood of vipers, actually. Okay? There was ever a team that God's people did not want to be on. It's Team Snake. Okay? John just goes right at, do not, you cannot think you are good enough. Don't believe the lie, verse 8, that simply being born into the right family guarantees you salvation. To be a child of Abraham is not about blood or DNA. It's about faith and the heart. That's what God's word tells us. Don't believe the lie that going through the motions of empty religious ritual earns you anything before God. I mean, think about what John was doing. He wasn't saying go up to Jerusalem to be baptized. He was saying meet me down at the Jordan. Something new is happening. The true repentance that God requires is the decision we make based on the word of God that we've been wrong and our only hope is found in the truth and turning to it in Jesus Christ. And John says when that happens deep in the heart, we turn from another lie as well. And that's the lie that says that to be right with God, I can simply whisper a remorseful sorry in my heart alleviate some guilt, and then go on living however I want. Oh no, my friends. Repentance is never an I'm sorry with an unchanged life. True repentance is a deep turn of the heart that is visible in the life. Verse eight, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, John says. And then in verses 10 through 14, we get, we get example after example of how that repentance doesn't just stay in the private matters of the heart. It is visible in a changed life. John is defining for us what repentance is. Deep change in the heart that is visible in the life. We see that when we look at these three crowds. They start showing up in verse number 10. Okay, there's a crowd of general population. Then there's specifically a group of tax collectors. And then there's some soldiers. Okay? And each one of them asks the same question. Did you see it in the text? Look at it. What then shall we do? Yes, John, we admit we've been going the wrong way. What do we do now? That's basically what they're saying, okay? And then as I looked at these three responses together, okay, we don't have time to look at them individually, but as I looked at them together, I think I think something profound begins to come to the front. I think what John is saying that he's saying that when you repent and turn to God, it's like the empty shell of external activity in your life gets filled up with the salvation of Jesus and starts to flow out. It's like you used to have this life that you did a lot of stuff on the outside, but it was a shell on the inside. When you turn to God, you are filled up on the inside with the salvation of God, and it begins to work its way out in your life. And with each response, John is saying, turn from that busy life with an empty heart to the full life and full heart that Jesus offers you. You see, in the salvation that Jesus was bringing, John's saying this. He's saying, you're filled up with everything you need. I see satisfaction in these three answers. You're content 
You cannot go on living the way you used to. You find verse 11, generosity flowing out of you. You share with those that are in need. Verse 13, you aren't greedy to take more than you should at your job. And verse 14, you don't use people for your own personal gain. I mean, think about it. John isn't telling these tax collectors and soldiers who are in corrupt occupations to quit their jobs. What's he saying? He's saying, get your heart filled up with true repentance and then go back and fulfill your job in the way God intends you to. That's the repentance God is offering to us where hearts are filled, satisfied, and you can live the generous life that God made you to live. And the crooked places, like the prophecy of Isaiah says, the crooked places of corruption shall become straight and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And God's word says the same thing to us. Turn to him. Let your heart be so filled with his truth that it overflows in your life. What kind of a heart does God require? A humble heart and a repentant heart. And then finally, an expectant heart. An expectant heart. Humble and repentant hearts are expectant hearts. Expectant of what? Expectant of the salvation of God expectant that the coming king would save them from their sins and the judgment that they knew they deserved because of them. You see, what's interesting is is the urgency that John talks with. So we have to talk about this because over and over again, John describes the salvation that's coming right next to judgment as well, doesn't he? All flesh will see the salvation of God, verse six says, then immediately verse seven, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Verse nine, the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 17, John says, when Christ comes, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. How is it possible to look forward to a king who comes like that? Well, John says, that's found in what our hearts are actually expecting. You see, when the expectation of our hearts is in the right place, then we expect a king like that. You see, verse 15 through 20, John begins to unpack this, okay? So here's what happens. John's sharing this message, and the more he shares it, the more people start to get excited because they hear the word of God, and it's moving among the people. And verse 15, all the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. You see, John is preaching the word of God and people get excited because they think they see Messiah before them, but John stops them and he says, don't look at me, don't expect me, expect the one who's coming I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in that statement, I think John is showing us the kind of hearts that every one of us must have. Expectant hearts, but not in John or even in what John came calling them to do. 
Don't put your trust in me, John says. Look expectantly to the one I'm preparing the way for. Don't even put your trust in the water baptism that I'm offering to you. Look expectantly for the baptism that's coming when Jesus arrives. His baptism isn't into water. His baptism is into God himself. That's what you need. And that's the kind of expectant heart that God longs for in his people. And even in saying that, I think there's this subtle but deadly temptation that can creep into our hearts even as we think about expecting the coming Jesus. You see, even in a desire to have a heart that's receptive to God, there's a temptation to still set our hope in the wrong things, isn't there? Make sure you're expecting the right thing, John says. Expect Jesus and his salvation alone. Set your hope in him, otherwise you'll miss the salvation he offers and you must face his sure and coming judgment. Oh my friends, let the word of God pierce your heart today. What is your hope in? Are you expecting that what you've done for God is what matters in your relationship with him? It doesn't. Your trust in God must be in Christ alone. Are you expecting that some sincerity of repentance or even depth of sorrow really meaning it, will somehow make you worthy before God. It won't. Only an expectant heart in Jesus will bring you salvation. Look to him. Look outside of yourself, even in your own response, and look to him and the salvation that comes through Jesus. Because as you look expectantly to him, you see Christ, God the Son, the mighty and strong one taking on weakness and humility in flesh and bones. And you see him living with a perfect heart and a perfect life, the life that you couldn't live inside and out. You see that the way of the Lord for him leads him to die on a cross. It leads him to bear God's judgment and wrath, not because he deserves it, but because we deserved it. And the Christ that John proclaims is a king who dies for his people. But thanks be to God, he didn't stay dead, did he? No, he is mightier than death and sin and hell. And he would rise again to offer forgiveness and salvation to any who would come to him in faith. And that salvation is available to any whose hearts have been humbled to repentance such that they expectantly look to him alone. May God open our eyes to the truth of his word. May our hearts be humbled to repentance such that we expect Jesus and his salvation alone.